Well, folks, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you and a bit of a special show because many of you know that our summer intern, Becca Flusher, has been here working tirelessly. In fact, I've decided I'm just going to give her my entire job. I mean, that's what we're going to do. And so, um, but she has been putting so many pieces together, including producing every segment of this week's show. And so you will hear that in this upcoming segment as well as the remaining two. So kudos to Becca. Well, later on for our inbox, should Christians use preferred pronouns that don't align with biological sex? Is it lying or loving to call them by their preferred pronouns? This is a big deal in our culture right now. And Jeff Johnston is here uh, to actually weigh in on this with some helpful thoughts. And then for our culture segment, Todd Friel, who's the host of Wretched Radio, is going to join us to talk about true and false conversions. Now, not in a weird, like heavy handed, like, let me point at you and tell you whether you're saved, but asking some good questions from scripture that will help you um, really ascertain what do you believe about the Bible? Do you consider it authoritative? What does it look like in your own life? So stay tuned for that. Okay, here we are for our roundtable and another great group this week. We have Adam, Peter, and Brittany. Hey, y'all. Hey. Hi. Okay, mm. we are talking. <laughs> this is a great topic. This is, again, I mentioned that this is Becca's show. She came up with this idea to talk about that launching period into adulthood. Now, we all wish that we could say that it's like at the age of 21, something magical happens and everyone becomes super independent and awesome and we just have no struggles and whatever. But I can clearly say from my own life that that's not true. Uh, some folks do it later, some do it easier. For some, it's hard. For some, it's easy. For some, their parents are like claws in them, not wanting them to be released into the world. And so we're going to break it down here. So I'm very grateful uh, that we have these folks here to weigh in on this. So, okay, I want to kind of start with just generally asking y'all personal experience what was your experience launching into adulthood? Because I know you all here live in this city with me. Uh, I don't think any of you live near your parents at this point. So somehow you've managed <laughs> to, no one's in any basements, no one's, you know, whatever. So Only when I get in trouble. What did, <laughs> that sounds about right. So what did the process look for you? And was it something that you were prepared for? Or was it something that just kind of, happened uh how did it go down um it was actually a little easier for me because i was able to just move out here to colorado um directly after college and so there wasn't there wasn't that kind of in between time where i had to go back move in with my parents and mm -hmm. and figure out now who am i as an adult with them yeah um but i could figure out who i am as an adult here okay and i think that actually made my relationship with them a little healthier because um, I could check in with them and talk to them about, okay, I'm trying to figure this out. Can you help me out with this? Give them, get their advice yeah. um, without feeling like they were helicoptering over me and, and yeah. you know, being, trying to be a part of every part of my life. <laughs> well, and didn't you, Peter, also go away to college? I so did. So you had a little yes. bit of that separation as well. So what yeah. was the, what was the path? It was California. California until I was 19. And then I went to Virginia. Okay. And then I came out to Colorado. For schools so. in Colorado. So, yeah. okay. Yeah. And what's your, do you currently have roommates or what are you? Yeah, doing I right have now? a roommate. Okay. Um, but I've lived a lot of different places out here, actually. 
which has been it's been cool to learn how to live with different people and yeah yeah there's different seasons of life i think it's been good <laughs> we'll do we'll do uh codependent roommates on a future round table oh, hopefully that's <laughs> can we also do sign me up roommates? <laughs> um we don't say stupid Adam. i know okay, whatever I know. i'm no. a parent okay well children. now that you're talking now talk about your experience well i moved out when i was 23 here to colorado which Back then, the earth was still perhaps cooling. You know, indoor <laughs> okay. plumbing had just been invented and uh -huh. stuff. Uh -huh. um, I took a job with the Navigators, which is a ministry here in Colorado Springs. I was out the summer after I graduated from college for a summer program, met the guy that I ended up working for as his assistant, but it was a fundraising position. So I went home for almost a year to raise support oh, to okay. do that job. Yeah, And I came out. My parents were really, really struggling financially. And so I knew not only was there no safety net for me, I didn't ever want to even be in a position where I would ask them for money. Mm -hmm. um, I was also on support, which is as much fun as you think it would be going to your friends and family mm -hmm. and saying, yeah. could you please give me money so I can do this job? Mm -hmm. uh, it was a great experience, but... You know, as you get older, you will get these things from the IRS saying how much you've earned and what you can expect, mm -hmm. you know, in retirement. And I look back on it recently and I made like $10,000 the first year I was yeah. out here. So I never asked my parents for money, but thank goodness I had a Citibank credit card yeah. to help me get through. Well, nice. I'm sure you got a free t-shirt. I did. Too, so I did. No, yeah. I did the Lord's work and Citibank helped me. Um, nice. But I mean, it was a pretty clean break just yeah. in terms of leaving home and, and coming out here. Yeah, because I think you mentioned um, prior to us taping that as of 23, apron strings were cut, right? No, no I don't think I have. I mean, I may have blocked out something. Maybe there was 100 bucks here or there, but yeah. I never got any money from my parents at all okay. after 23. All right. Okay, Brittany, how about you? So I have a similar story to Peter, as in I grew up in California, went to college in Texas for four years, and then almost directly moved out here. I traveled a little bit in mm -hmm. between, but came out to Colorado. Um, at this point, it's no secret for anyone that's listened <laughs> that I'm besties <laughs> with my parents. So it definitely wasn't a complete clean break. Mm -hmm. I think I ended up being a little bit more prepared for adulthood than I thought. Mm -hmm. My parents would always say, oh, you're adulting, you know, air <laughs> quotations in college, like starting to figure things out. Mm -hmm. And even my first year out of college, which it's been about just a year, mm -hmm. they're still like, you're in your adulting phase, but now you're real. Like you're, you're certified now, mm -hmm. you know? I think a lot of that had to do with kind of what you were saying, Adam. My parents slowly worked me up to the financially independent thing. Mm -hmm. So through college, I started working more and more. They paid for less and less. So by the time I graduated, it was, you know, I have my own wings. I can fly type <laughs> fly, of thing. Fly, be free. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think that was helpful in creating a lot of boundaries since I am so close with them mm -hmm. and I care about their opinions so much it kind of helped give some sort of line there yeah, that's good 
Yeah, I feel like hearing your stories, I'm probably the biggest cautionary tale of everyone here in that I I remember (laughs) loving college. I did go away to college. I went sight unseen. So that was a very hard transition to just Mm. be like, I don't have any friends here. I went from California to the Midwest. And uh, but when I graduated with a an English and then a communications degree, my folks gave me a T-shirt that said, I have a liberal arts degree. Do you want fries with that? And I pretty much grew into that self-fulfilling prophecy. I did some really cool things and some really lame things for all of my 20s. So I definitely boomeranged back home at least twice, I believe. Um, trying to find myself. I would pack my car up and move places like other states and take a job and it either didn't pan out or maybe I was temping or I was doing some freelance or something and I was just all over the map. And so it was very hard because my parents at the time, they moved from California to a town of 122 people in rural Minnesota. And I knew both times I landed there that I couldn't stay. And so it was like this you self- You like fishing? It was this self, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was this self-imposed uh, prison sentence in that sense, even though my parents were great. So folks, if you are boomeranging a little bit, be encouraged. But I did have to take ownership of that and be like, hey, when is this going to stop? I mean, I got to figure out what I'm doing because I can't be 45 and just like, hey, okay, mom, you know, thanks. Let's get some groceries. So- yeah. Well, I think one of the challenges of young adulthood is that we naturally compare ourselves to everybody around mm-hmm. us. And in God's providential plan, and I don't want to over-spiritualize, there are people who hit the ground running and they end up in a great job. Yeah. And that's a career path that opens up. And, you know, it seems like they're off yeah. and it can feel like we're just swimming. I mean, the same thing happens. This is another podcast you know, with dating, you know, Mm -hmm. why do some people meet somebody when they're 22 or 23 and others of us were single much, much longer than we ever intended to be. And I think it's an opportunity, especially when things don't maybe go according to plan, you know, to trust God with that. When you're in that moment, it's like, all right, Lord, this is not where I wanted to be, but here I am. Well, and in the career scenario, I feel like, you know, and and Adam and I are the oldsters at the table (laughs) here. I feel like that's gotten even worse. Like now Mm -hmm. with people doing multiple internships, the digital component of just allowing for training and connection and networking and stuff. I mean, people are being snapped up while still in school. And again, if you have certain degrees, like, hello, accountants and engineers, you kind of know what you're going to do with your life. Right. (laughs) It's the rest of us that are like, you know, bless your heart, French literature majors, because you need to reconsider. I mean, honestly. Cafe's a French word. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Barista. Barista. Yeah, Yeah, that's going to be about it. So, um, okay, well, let's talk a little bit about like what, um, you know, and this could be whether it's practical or whether it's emotional or whatever. What have been some of the most difficult transitions that you experienced into adulthood, whether it was, you know, emotional separation, maybe your parents saying, you know, it's no secret. I've shared on the show how my dad and I had a very tense relationship because he thought that I was still supposed to, like, obey him. I mean, I'm talking in my 20s. um, So we had to have some pretty heated combos about that. (laughs) So, I mean, I, I always say when I talk to parents, I'm like, 
parents, you have a role here too in letting go. You know, this is a two-way street. You can't just find your identity in your kids and make it all about them either. So what would you say were some of the things that really had to be worked through for you? I think going off of what you said, I think it's definitely a push and pull Mm -hmm. relationship with your parents. Um, I was just vacationing so glamorous in Switzerland Mm -hmm. with some friends and my boyfriend, Nathaniel, And it was one of the first birthdays that I wasn't home with all of my childhood friends and families. I've had a few, but I don't know. It it had been a while. And my mom was telling me when I got back, she's like, it was so hard because I wanted to plan your whole day. Like, (laughs) I wanted to tell them what they should take you to do and all this stuff. But Nathaniel had all these ideas and asked me if they were good. And she's like, it was a real internal struggle to let him take the reins for Mm. it yeah and I feel the same way in the sense of you know it's kind of hard to start making your own path and maybe make decisions that your parents didn't make and go against what they might say so I think it's definitely the push and pull of it Mm -hmm. and having conversation about it I think is the best way to get through it honestly yeah because without that i think it would be a train wreck. (laughs) Well, and I think that's interesting what you bring up, because I think in the sense of when you look ahead to certain things like traditions and the way you spend holidays and the way you do certain things, especially if they're great memories and great systems, they're hard to let go of. But Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, Adam's our married dude here. When you get married, like all bets are off because all of a sudden you have other people to consider. It's it's not like we're going to go home. And and again, another podcast. My my stocking is going to be hung right next to my parents and I'm going to sit there under the tree. And yeah, I mean, it can be tricky. But what about other things to navigate? Well, yeah, I think I think, well, two things. One of them, uh, I think both are really connected to what you were saying, Brittany, but expectations for your life and for what what is a good life career decision and move and all those kind of things and I think there's there's ways you can set it up with them and talking to your parents and being like hey I would like your advice um, and not asking them to fix your problem or to make a decision for you because mm-hmm. there's some aspects to if they don't see you taking responsibility then they'll try and fix it for you because they've done it their whole lives mm-hmm. um, but my parents have actually been really good and really helpful in in being a source of information and and hmm. knowledge but not um not trying to well i would do this and you should probably do this but instead being well you could make this decision or that decision just kind of talking through options and that's super helpful and the second thing though and i think i mean again it's been a while since i've lived at home but i know when i was 18 19 and maybe this is a teenager thing but and also the fact I'm I'm very independent, but my parents wanted to know my schedule. When are you going to be home or what are you going to be mm-hmm. doing or where were you at? And I was like, no, I'm an adult. I can do what I want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so trying to find some peace between that um, and being able to communicate while also being like, well, I am independent and I don't need you to parent me or make sure I'm okay or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm taking responsibility for my life and my schedule. Well, and that's a hard conversation and one that has to be had respectfully with parents because there's actually, I mean, again, this is where I would say parents can have some growth points here of 
dealing with their own fears. You know, like I've had this conversation with my sister because my nephews are all grown now. One just finished college and um, she like texts them constantly. Like every time they go somewhere, she wants to know when they left, when they arrived, when they, and I'm like, girl, you need to chill because (laughs) one, your life is being ruled by this. And two, Mm -hmm. you need, you know, they need to be able to go about and do things and be like, you know, so it's, it's not them that need that. It's her that needs it. And so, yeah, Mm. but you know, again, having that conversation respectfully is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think another big issue is just physical proximity. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in some ways, maybe it's easier when you move away because you're not physically in a position where you can crash if you need to. Um, you kind of know that you're on your own. And I think the expectations are different when you're physically removed from your parents. And I, with all due respect to my beloved home state of Iowa, I got out as soon as I could. <laughs> um, and I got here and I'm like, you know, I what's the bumper sticker, Colorado? Not a native, but I got here as fast as I could. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But sorry, flips, Iowans. Sorry, yeah. I, I mean I love Iowa, but <laughs> no, it's okay. Probably never going back unless God makes it really clear. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think that um, the flip side of that is can be moments of incredible isolation. So I came out for my first job, and my boss was on a business trip for three weeks, and his admin basically said, "Your office is downstairs. There's a pile of magazines that you can look through." <laughs> Jerry will be back in three weeks. And I had a studio apartment that was like 200 square feet um, (laughs) with a domestic, a couple that was constantly throwing things next door. I'm like, do I call the police now? Hmm. Um, And I had a a beanbag chair was my sole piece of furniture. And so very versatile, you know, I would sit, (laughs) I would sit in my (laughs) chair at work every day and then go home to a totally empty apartment. And I was 23 and there are moments where you're like, what did I do? I don't know anybody here. I don't. Mm -hmm. And you can second guess everything. And I don't think my, my example may be extreme, but I think if you move, you know, at some point in your twenties by yourself, you're going to be experiencing a kind of isolation that maybe you've never had. And, and even if you went to college, it's different than college because college has all sorts of built-in safety nets, but that's not Mm -hmm. the case after college. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think like, to that point, our parents are are our safety net. They're our exactly. friends too, mm-hmm. um, hopefully, ideally, <laughs> like like Brittany. Mm-hmm. Besties, um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so when you you either you leave that completely, and then you feel like, oh, did I make a mistake? Or you stay in it, and it's hard to adjust. Okay, how is it now? I'm interacting more as a peer mm-hmm. than as they are the person who's responsible for my life. Yeah. My decisions. Well, how, okay. So that brings up a good question that I'd like to ask y'all. What are some of those things where you saw like opportunities for growth in skills, in something where you're like, yeah, there could be a deficit here. This is something I need to go after. This is something, you know, that really, I mean, what would be your recommendation to the young adults listening now of like, 
I would recommend shoring this up in your life, whether it's a life skill or an attitude or whatever. I know for me, my dad died when I was a young adult. And I had he not died, I would probably still have him doing my taxes because I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't know numbers. I didn't care. I didn't. And it was something that I was forced into like, oh, my goodness, I'm gonna have to figure this thing out. So that was just an example I, I came up with. But what are those things that you'd recommend? Like, this is a good marker of maturity that I would recommend going after. I think coming straight from college and being around people your age 24-7 and just always being around people, not even that they're just your age, just always being surrounded. I knew that something I was lacking was the ability to be alone. Mm. Because even once I'd leave hanging out with friends or class or whatever it was, I instantly would be like, hey, mom, on the phone, talking. If I'm in the grocery store, I'm calling an old friend from home. Like, I just always had to be talking to someone mm -hmm. and okay cutting in can you drive from work to home without calling someone well I used to live a quarter of a mile <laughs> just yes from or work. No. so no but now okay. I live seven minutes okay and it's a challenge okay I'm working okay. on it though you're honest you're honest. yes good just checking but I decided that I, I moved out here alone to Colorado and it was really hard kind of what you were saying Adam not sugarcoating it at all the first three or four months were so filled with loneliness and the thoughts of did I make a mistake and I realized that the reason I did it really was because I knew I was lacking the skill to be alone and I made the decision to just go for it mm. and it resulted in having a really hard few months but now I know I can do it. Mm. I just moved in with a roommate and it's super fun and it's great. But I used to be scared of being alone mm. and wondering if I could do it. But now I know I can. So if that ever happens at a point in my life again, I feel confident that I can survive on my own. I'm okay <laughs> sitting on the couch and complete silence and not talking to people. And I feel like it was a skill I just really needed to learn and acknowledged it and kind of threw myself into the fire and I feel like I came out. I think I made it. Yeah, that's a good point because I think, and I would encourage everyone listening, especially if you're single, to flex that muscle now because I know so many married couples who... Like I have friends who when their husbands travel, it's like they can barely stay in their own home. They're all freaking out about it. Like, I don't know if I want to be here by myself or I don't. Can I come stay with you? <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe that's just a couple of my friends. But anyway, um, but just remembering not that we don't want to be like dissing future spouses or anything, but just realizing that, you know, yeah, you know, you're a unique person and you can do this and, you know, any kind of life skill. So, yeah, yeah I'd say um, just in general figuring out adulting stuff, quote unquote, um, if that's, you know, cooking mm. or how do we make friends or make community mm -hmm. and figure out things at work um, and really trying to, to learn those things and maybe using your parents as, as a sounding board of advice. But again, taking really responsibility. I think that's, that's I think I've repeated it three times, but taking mm. responsibility for your life and for what you're doing and for being an adult who yeah. can function on their own. <laughs> yeah, uh, ordering Grubhub is a skill, but it might not take you the distance into adulthood. So uh, yeah, yeah, don't rely on it solely. Yeah. I think I want to say something about church 
and yeah. my ideas will form as they come out. I think <laughs> especially if you are involved in a really vibrant college friendship, I think it's really important to just be aware that you may not find something that looks exactly like that mm-hmm. in your 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, I was heavily involved with young adult singles groups from the time I got here until my wife and I got married at 34. And I think it can be jarring if you have been in that environment to realize that, oh, finding a church where I fit in, finding a peer group can be hard. And I don't want to like sound like a negative Nelly, uh, but I think especially like I was involved with the same 25 or 30 people for for five years. We were like family when we graduated. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes time and it takes longer. Like if, especially if you're coming from college, Mm -hmm. everything in college is sort of like the distilled essence of it Mm because you're all there together doing it at the same time. And so relationships take longer to form. Um, I would say be patient, give it time. But on the, on the flip side, understand that church is really important Mm -hmm. because I think that's a moment where you can choose to isolate. You can choose to not go to church anymore. Keep engaging in that area, even if you don't have a church that has a young adult group or, you know, whatever your expectations are, you know, stay at it. Yeah. That's a really great point. Oh, well, you guys, we are out of time. Um, What a great conversation, great ideas. It's encouraging even to look at your faces and realize, oh yeah, you're legit. (laughs) You know, and like this this can be done. Yeah, this can be done, y'all. So if you're listening and you're feeling discouraged and you're like, am I going to have to wait another 10 years before I feel like I'm on my own or I've broken free or whatever, uh, just know that putting all of these components together and a piece at a time is going to get you there. So it's not a, uh, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon for sure. Some of us are still growing up in some areas, so oh, yeah. it's good to oh, know. Definitely. So oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. adulting doesn't stop. It, does, oh. it doesn't, there's no phase <laughs> after there's adulting. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, well, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Folks, we're here for this week's culture segment. I have the privilege of introducing to you, if you do not yet know him, 
uh, Todd Friel. Todd is the host of Wretched TV and Wretched Radio. He's an author, an evangelist, a producer, obviously, as I mentioned, a show host. Uh, He likes to speak a lot at conferences, churches, public places, um, including college campuses, so right in the wheelhouse of where some of you are right now, uh, with evangelism opportunities and really sometimes some theological debates. So, Todd, welcome to The Boundless Show. Do you want to hear something crazy from a boomer? Yes. I actually really dig Gen Z, Gen X, Millennial. I dig the whole lot. Okay. I know that there's a lot of belly aching and people who are just kind of pejoratively calling them names. I don't like it. I think they've got just oodles of stuff that they can teach us. So I'm kind of weird in that regard because I'm a boomer that actually loves going to university campuses. Well, that's great. And obviously, I mean, there's so many in our audience who, you know, we're always pushing here at the Boundless Show, get a mentor, you know, get older folks in your life, get people who love Jesus, those people that are a few steps ahead of you. And sometimes they're frustrated because boomers and even some of the older folks are like, eh, we don't know if we have time or we're not qualified or we don't know what to tell you or whatever. And I'm like, hey, church, you got to step up. We have a generation of young adults here that are looking uh, to you for some wisdom and a wealth of advice and whatnot. So I appreciate you stepping into that space. Um, Okay, well, folks, in addition to all that he does in in the realm of evangelism, he is, uh, he's married, he has three adult children, apparently he has two grand dogs, which um, maybe they're listening, I don't know. Um, Well, I want to just jump right into it, because we talk a lot here at Boundless about People, you know, I mean, there are just a number of young adults that based on what they're hearing from the culture or maybe the church tradition they grew up in or books that they've read, they're kind of like, they just want to be told, like, I need to know that I'm knowing the right things, that I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> There's kind of, you know, and that's a little problematic. But in, in the case of faith, many of them are like, they would ask the very popular question, Todd, how do I know that I'm saved? And we're going to get into that topic today because not that we're, you know, telling people, well, go into a lineup here and we're going to point at you and determine who's saved and who's not. But I want you to start by sharing your own story because I think this is really weird that you were studying to be a pastor before you came to a realization about your own faith. So tell us that story a bit. Yeah, weird, but not uncommon. I'm telling you, there are oodles, and that's a lot of people who are actually studying to be ministers. There are people who are pastors who aren't Christians, and I'm afraid there are myriads of sheep who are actually goats who are not a member of God's kingdom, and I know it full well. I was studying to be a pastor, but I was not a Christian. How do you slip through the cracks? And the answer was, I initially thought the idea about Jesus was really good because I was terrified as a child to die because I had a sense something bad is going to happen to me. So the day that I was brought to church in eighth grade and I heard that if you believe in Jesus, you're going to go to heaven, I thought, sign me up. I want to get out of hell free pass. I want to go to a good place. So I gave lip service to Jesus Christ. But here's the key. I had never repented and trusted Jesus Christ. And that is the biblical formula for salvation. Mm -hmm. repentance and faith. And I lacked both. Yeah. 
Well, that's a good point. And obviously, repentance uh, tends to, you know, if we're going to say repentance, naturally, the outcome of that is uh, a directional change. And we see change. I want you to back up, though, because you, you mentioned, well, you know, I believe in Jesus, whatever. What are some of those other false assumptions that you hear from people? Like, of course, I'm a Christian. I fill in the blank, especially in, you know, we, we have an international audience here. But from what you're seeing on campuses and on the streets, what are people trusting in? What's their assumptions? Yeah, it, it, it's just that. It's it's quite presumptive. Here in the Bible Belt of the South in America, I, I saw a poll. Everybody's been saved 7.4 times. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people just go to church here and they follow the flow. But every individual, young and old, needs to do what Jesus tells us to do, and that is to make sure that we're not one of the three soils in the four-soil parable. If you recall, this was the parable Jesus said, if you don't get this one, you're not going to get any other parable. It's really key. There were three different groups of people who heard the word. They responded in some way, but it was only the fourth soil where the roots took hold and fruit was born out of them. Jesus talked about true and false converts constantly, wise virgins, foolish virgins, good fish, rotten fish, wheat and tares. It is a subject that he was on about a ton because he knew that people like me would be self-deceived. And so the Bible gives us tools that we can use to examine ourselves, and it gives us very clear instructions about how to become a Christian. But, and here's kind of the critical part, in evangelical Christianity, we have actually made a pretty big hash out of the gospel itself. We teach all kinds of forms of a gospel. We say all kinds of phrases that you should speak in order to become a Christian. And while I don't think that anybody's been trying to deceive anybody, the reality is I think the pulpits, even evangelistic ministries, have simply not been presenting the right gospel with the right response. Hmm. Well, and you do, you mention that a lot, like in your writings and stuff, kind of the idea of how um, there's been a proliferation of almost gospels, or we use weird (laughs) phrases like asking Jesus into our heart. Um, We talk about walking aisles, praying prayers, and it makes it sound very formulaic and very one and done. Why has the church bought into this? And why are even pastors and evangelists so about like, like, here's what you need to do, and then we're going to add you to our church roles and our tally and kind of move you along. Yeah, well, the reality is the gospel's really offensive. It's the only religion that says, no, you can't. Every other world system, every other false religion says, do your best, try your hardest, and cross your fingers, and good luck. Maybe you'll go to nirvana or to paradise. But Christianity says, no, 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 you can't do that. Mm-hmm. In fact, Not only can you not earn God's favor, you have a sin debt, and it must be paid by another. In other words, your salvation is not within you. It is outside of you in the person of Jesus Christ. That's offensive, especially in this postmodern world. So we kind of softened up a little bit, kind of shaved off some of the the sharper edges of the Christian gospel, and we have a life enhancement gospel. And the interesting thing about this, Lisa, is none of these are like— totally wrong, but they're not totally right either. So for instance, you'll hear people say, you've got a God-shaped hole in your heart that only Jesus can fill. Is that true? 
Yes. Mm -hmm. But is that the gospel? And the answer is no. The gospel is Jesus died for sinners. If you will repent and put your trust in him, your sins will be forgiven. Then you will have fruits of having your God-shaped hole filled. You will have those experiences, but we've used a lot of the benefits of the gospel as draw cards to salvation. And when we do that, the individual who hears it will receive neither the gift nor the giver. So we've got life enhancement gospel. We've got a prosperity gospel, come to Jesus and get rich, social gospel so that we can see societal change. You've got the get out of hell free gospel, which is is not right. And if anybody thinks, well, this is kind of hellfire, well, hellfire is is real and we need to be aware of it, but that is not why an individual should repent. Romans 2 says it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, that we see our plight. We know that we are on an ACDC road and we see Jesus dying on a cross, loving us, saving us, forgiving us, and then out of gladness and out of gratitude, we turn to him for salvation because God is not seeking fear-filled converts as much as tear-filled converts. So we've just dulled down the really potent message of the gospel that says you can inherit eternal life on the work of another. And so I think that it has caused a proliferation of false converts. Yeah, it's so interesting. It was about a month ago. We have a relatively new senior pastor at our church uh, here in town, and he actually said in the course of a sermon, he made this reference of like, yeah, well, you know, there's the visible church and there's the invisible church. And basically his explanation was the visible church is there are people sitting in pews, there are people signing pledges or people saying they believe and whatever. And then there's the invisible church, which is the true church, God's church, the people that God has uh, foreordained, uh, you know, his sheep, the ones who will know his voice. And I think it shook a few people up because they realized like, oh, he's talking to some people in the pews here who, God bless them, welcome, come and sit down, take in gospel teaching and stuff. But don't assume that because you're warming a seat on a Sunday that you are part of the family of God. And I would love for you to speak to that a little bit because I think we're so prone to say, oh, well, we can't judge, you know, we don't know who's saved and who's not saved. Or people will say, you know, and it kind of bugs me when people get a little wacky by saying stuff like, well, he just got saved or, you know, his uh, Jesus is his savior, but not quite his Lord yet. Like it's a two-step <clears throat> process or something weird. Talk a little bit about those uh, kind of those perceptions and, and how they're a little problematic for us as the church. Well, Jesus tells us to examine ourselves, see that if we are in the faith or not. So that that's just a biblical call to self-examination because you might be self-deceived. First John is a book that is dedicated to the subject of true and false converts. At the very end of the book, in chapter 5, he says, I've written these things that you might know you are saved. And then the preceding five chapters, he lays out the markers of a genuine convert. So those who love the brethren, those who love to hear teaching from good preaching, those are some of the signs of people who are truly saved, including, here's a scary one, 
1 John 3, 8, 9, if you keep on sinning, now that doesn't mean you never sin, but if you persistently, willfully go on unrepentingly as a sinner, you're of the devil. So we do have a test that's baked right into the Bible to help us know if we're a true or false convert. So, Lisa, this might be really helpful. If anybody is scratching their head right now going, huh, am I possibly one of those false converts? Let me ask you what you did when you became a Christian, because this goes back to the lingo that we use in evangelicalism that isn't quite accurate. The Bible command, repent and believe. Is it possible that you're a false convert because you did what you were told, you accepted Jesus. That's one of the things we say these days. You need to accept Jesus. And that sounds right, but it's actually biblically backwards. We don't accept Jesus. We repent to put our trust in him, and then he accepts us. He doesn't need our affirmation. We need his. So if you've merely accepted Jesus, you might want to examine yourself further. Or if you responded by making Jesus your Lord and Savior, that's more of our evangelical lingo. Well, sounds good and kind of biblical, but the reality is Jesus already is our Lord and Savior. We don't make him anything. We bow the knee. We submit to him in repentance and faith, and then he receives us. Make a decision for Jesus. That's another phrase we use. Now, the truth is we do need to make a decision about whether or not the claims of the Bible are true. But that's as far as our decision goes. A decision does not save. Jesus saved when we repent and put our trust in him. Some people are really casual. They'll say, just say yes to Jesus, this very low bar. Just say yes. As if by just going, all right, fine, I guess I can, I guess I can stand Jesus now. That doesn't make you a Christian. I've heard pastors say, try Jesus, and if in 90 days you're not satisfied, you can get your money back. Well, (laughs) wait a second. Jesus isn't a used car. We need to repent. Here's one that's that's also tricky. Commit to Jesus. (laughs) That sounds really good, but I've got a better biblical way to get saved, and that is we repent, put our trust in him, and he commits to us. Because if I have to hold on to Jesus, my weak fingers are going to let him go. But I don't need to worry about that. When I repent, put my trust in Jesus. He keeps me in his hands. And then finally, and this this might get a little controversial. Are you ready for this one, Lisa? I'm ready. The sinner's prayer. Mm -hmm. This is one that has been used in evangelical Christianity. really started with a fellow named Charles Finney in the mid-19th century. And this is when an individual says, if you would like to ask Jesus into your heart, bow your head, close your eyes, and repeat after me, and then we'll say things like, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner, I believe in you, Um, amen. Well, um, an individual does need to pray to God, call out to him in repentance and faith, but I fear that the sinner's prayer has been used a little bit loosely, and it's as strange a concept as, uh, as if I had committed adultery. Let's just say I had an affair. I have really behaved wickedly toward my wife. And then I go to somebody and I say, hey, you know what? I'd kind of like to be back home because she's kicked me out. Would you come with me? And then I have a friend come and I ring the doorbell. My wife answers and my friend whispers into my ear, honey, I'm really sorry. Honey, I'm really sorry. Would you please let me back into the house? 
would you please let me back into the house? You, the, my wife would kick me out all over again mm-hmm. because it's not coming from the heart. So if you have thought that you become a Christian using these phrases or these methods, today is the day of salvation. Repent, turn from your sins, and put your trust in Jesus. And you have his word. He will not cast you out. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. And so, I mean, I think it gets so goofy when people think, you know, we, we're so prone, in, especially in Western culture, to want to strike a deal and think that we're bringing something to the table and it's going to be this Jesus and me and we're going to come to an agreement. And, and I'm like, yeah, you better read scripture again, because again, this is similar to uh, God himself and Abraham, that one-sided covenant of who's doing the work here and what does this look like? So I think that's so helpful for you to say that, that, you know, just lift service to these things. Uh, it really is. We got to, we have to examine that. Well, I want to turn, I want to talk a little bit about sin, because I think this is a question we get a lot here at Boundless as well. And like, say someone is, you know, they want to please God. They are feeling like, you know, yeah, I can't, I'm, you know, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. It's not like they're walking in arrogance, but they have got just a, you know, let's call it a besetting sin, or they're a stronghold, a sin pattern that they are praying about that they, and they just keep getting tripped up. But it's not like you said, Todd, in the defiance of this isn't sin or just ignoring it or winking at it. And they're going to ask, if I'm a Christian, Todd, why doesn't God take this struggle away from me? Mm-hmm. Why doesn't he make me more yeah. effective for him? Why am I constantly bogged down from this? Wouldn't a true believer eventually get victory over this? How would you respond to that? Well, the Puritans would say to the individual who is in a panic because they fear they might not be saved, that's the very sign that you likely are. Hmm. A false convert doesn't care. A false convert winks at sin. No, a false convert invites sin in, plays with it, and then repeats the cycle day after day. Those are the marks of a false convert. It's the genuine convert who beats his breast saying, oh, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we do need to recognize the author of Hebrews does identify that we can have a besetting sin. And for, I would say, most people, especially most younger people, especially most younger males, It is lust issues specifically exhibited in viewing pornography, and they are caught in a trap, and they can't get out, and they are so grieved about their sin. They're so worried about their sin, they think they might not be saved. I would say to that one, we're going to come up with some new biblical strategies to mortify that sin, but because you care, because you're continuing to repent, Martin Luther said the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life, is a life of repentance. You've got a besetting sin. I've got a besetting sin. You've, everybody's got one. The question is, what do we do with it? Do we play with it or do we kill it? And if your desire is to kill it, but it felt like whack-a-mole because you knock it down and it pops back up again, stay in the battle. Just continue on. Persevere. Go to war. And in this process, there will be a benefit You ask the question, why doesn't God just take it away? Because he wants us to lean on him. He wants us to rest in him. He wants us to know that we need him. He wants us to realize how great a savior he is. And sometimes a besetting sin can produce that sort of fruit. So don't grow weary. Don't be discouraged. Don't be presumptive. But 
carry on, keep believing in Jesus, keep repenting, and you can go to bed at night knowing you're his child. Hmm. Well, we are going to, uh, speaking of this, because I think, you know, people get super angsty and now they're all worried because they thought, you know, some, exactly as you said at the beginning, Todd, have walked aisles uh, multiple times at camp and VBS and whatever. You actually have a video um, that you, where you have linked to really a, a 10 point test to see if you are saved. Now, this isn't like some Facebook quiz of like, what lip gloss flavor are you or whatever, but I want people to, we're going to, we're going to link to this so you can check it out. Um, but give us a little teaser of it, Todd, as we finish out here, um, because again, the time goes so fast, we're out of time, but. But really, evidences of salvation, as in Scripture, what will people expect to see as you lay out this video? Well, if, if they if they listen to that, they will hear First John being echoed, where he gives a 10-point test to see if you really are a child of God. But I would summarize all of those, perhaps by an illustration. You're in Colorado Springs, right? Yep. All right. So let's just say I happen to be there. Lisa... You know what? I have been to Mexico. It's better. There's less humidity there. Let's go to Mexico. I've been there. I'll drive. So we jump into my car and we start driving. A few hours go by and you start to realize something is wrong because instead of seeing palm trees, you're starting to see pine trees and the land is getting very flat. And then suddenly you see a sign that says Mount Rushmore in 212 miles. You know, I'm taking you in the wrong direction. What do you want me to do? Well, there's six things that you would expect from me. Number one, you would like for me to agree with you. You're right. You showed me the signs. I have done you wrong, Lisa. But that's not all you want from me. You want me to stop, but you don't want me to just sit on the side of the road. I suspect you'd like me to turn around. Furthermore, you want me to start driving in the right direction. You don't want me to stop till we get there And you would expect some form of contrition. I've done you wrong, Lisa. I'm really sorry. That's repentance. Mm -hmm. The marks of a Christian can be identified bullet point by bullet point at 1 John. But the overall theme is I am just, I I don't want to go in that direction anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not going in the right direction perfectly all the time. I'm I'm not suddenly sinless, but that's my heart's desire. Now as a Christian, I want to do what is right. Now, as a Christian, I want to go to church. Now, as a Christian, I want to be with God's people, not with people who are worldly, who actually hate Jesus. I have had a heart transplant. That's what it means to be a Christian. And please note, because I know some tender reeds can be bruised by this type of conversation, you're you're never going to do it perfectly. You're, You're never going to get this thing totally right until you're glorified. But as long as you are striving because it is your heart's desire to be conformed more into the image of the one who died to save you, then congratulations. You're a member of the kingdom, and you are marching to Celestial City with the rest of us. Hmm. Yeah, so good. Well, folks, we have been talking to Todd Friel, uh, host of both Wretched TV and Wretched Radio, evangelist, author, speaker, producer, and uh, just such a privilege to really parse this out and put legs to what so many people 
want to know, you know, what is God's heart for me? What does this look like? Not in like some weird formula, but just true biblical truth. And I just really appreciate Todd, you doing that for us today. Uh, Again, folks, uh, links will be in the episode notes. So check them there, including wretched.org, Todd's website. Uh, We'll have information about uh, that YouTube video as well as some of his books. So Todd, thanks again for being part of this show and this conversation. I got to tell you, thanks for even asking the questions. I wish more people did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we love doing that here at Boundless. We want to move a generation of young adults closer to the cross and being able to read and study the Bible and apply it to everyday life. So thanks for your part in that. Folks, we are finishing out the show by opening up our inbox, as we always do, because these are questions that we get from you, which are often very insightful and helpful related to a number of things that y'all are going through. And also, sometimes they touch on things that we're experiencing in the culture and the world around us. And that's what this week is. Um, So this is going to be really great. I get to welcome my friend Jeff Johnston into the studio. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Lisa. Glad to be here. Fabulous. One of our analysts uh, here at Focus on the Family, who specifically deals a lot with um, sex, identity, gender kind of stuff, in addition to marriage topics. And so thanks for giving us your wisdom uh, related to this. Okay, uh, I'm going to read the question here. This has several kind of parts and nuances. So our listener wants to know, this is such a good one, so timely. Should Christians use preferred pronouns that don't align with biological sex? And then they're kind of wondering, are gender and sex even the same thing? But back to (laughs) preferred pronouns, is it lying or is it loving? I'd also appreciate the situation addressed where students are forced to declare and use another individual's preferred pronouns in school. And editorializing here, I would say in work, in whatever. I have a lot of friends, Jeff, that are doing that. How do we love others and stand for the truth but not alienate others? Wow, Lisa, this, we could talk for half an hour if we, we wanted to. Well, maybe but, we will at some um, point. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me start with our sex and gender the same thing, because that has to do with ideology. Mm-hmm. And for the Christian, um, sex is biological reality. God made us, made us in his image, male and female, and individuals are either male or female. And we know that to be true. And what God designed us to have happen was that our masculinity or our femininity would grow out of our biological sex. That, and that's part of our God-given identity. But what's happened in our culture back in the 40s and 50s, a researcher named John Money 
coined the term gender identity, and he separated gender from sex and said gender is a different thing. There are a ton of genders. You can switch from one sex to the other or from one gender to the other, and we can help you do that with medicine. And this is really a false ideology, and John Money was not a good person. He uh, falsified research, and he was um, involved in illegal activities with young children. And so it's really it really came from an uh, an ugly person, and it's a false ideology. So for Christians, we have to stand against that. We have to understand the ideology and oppose it. But to the second part of the question, when you're dealing with people, we don't want to mock people or ridicule people. It's okay to poke fun at the ideology, but not the person. And that's where this gets really difficult. We oppose the ideology, and we ask God to help us love people. And I know in my own life, I have to ask God for that a lot because I don't naturally love people. And so I say, help me love this person. Um, And so we want to love them with the love of Christ, but we also want to speak the truth. And it would be a lie for Christians to collude with this false ideology. So that may be where we have to negotiate with someone and say, hey, um, I disagree with you on this. I love you deeply. Um, I care about you, but I don't know that I can agree with you on this. Mm -hmm. And I've seen families, even in my own family, torn apart. And it's usually the person who's saying, I'm this other gender, um, and you have to use this name and these pronouns, who pulls away. The family's trying to love them as best they can, but it's usually the other person who pulls away. And so we may have to be prepared for that. Um, so you may have to negotiate. And when they say, hey, you're not respecting me, you're not loving me, you're not not respecting my beliefs, um, we can turn the tables and say, you know, it's not respectful of my beliefs as a Christian to ask me to do something that I don't think is right. Mm -hmm. So there's just a couple of ideas on this. I want to say we could talk about this for half an hour or so. Um, I write for Focus on the Families, The Daily Citizen. We have a whole series on pronouns and how to negotiate this at work, Mm -hmm. at school, and other places with individuals. And we have written a lot as well about gender ideology and why we don't believe in that as Christians. Mm -hmm. So people can find that information there. Well, that's good. Good to know. Great resource. We'll provide uh, some of that uh, opportunity to link in the show notes as well. So make sure you can find that there. It is tricky because I think once you take it into everyday life where it becomes a workplace thing, it becomes, as our listener said, a school thing. All of a sudden, some people are like, well, I don't want to say nothing because like, I want people to know that I, Lisa, am a she, her. You know, I don't want to leave people guessing. Um, but at the same time, it's it, it's as you've said before, uh, Jeff, you know, it's it's not our job to play the game or to bow to the culture based on what others are, are saying or choosing to identify as. We've got to stay true to Scripture and who God says we are. You're right. And, and people are paying a price for this. There are people who have lost jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, there are religious legal organizations that are there for folks who encounter this at work or at school or some other place with the federal government even mm-hmm. um, to support them. And, and you know, it's expensive and it's time consuming and it's horrible that we have to do this. But this is infringing on free speech and religious freedom and parental rights. So it's a very important issue. Yeah. Well, good thoughts there, as always. 
Well, folks, uh, that is it for this week's show. Uh, Like I said, a lot of resources, a lot of information given out in this week's show. So you can go to boundless.org and find all those there. You can look up past questions. You can look up past articles, past show episodes, and see all that Boundless has to offer. In fact, if you go under the adulthood tab at boundless.org, you will see a subcategory of sexuality where we really delve into a lot of the things that are happening uh, in our culture and beyond everything from sexual identity conversations to pornography to um, sex, uh, premarital sex and cohabitation and stuff. So it's all there, folks. Uh, Check it out and join us next week. I will see you around next week, actually. Uh, This is Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family.